Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to the Stages podcast. We're back to Perth for this episode where my guest from the West is Nigel Rideout. As an actor, teacher and writer, Nigel has been involved in professional theatre, film and television for the past 50 years in the UK, USA and Australia. From 1972 to 80, Nigel was Deputy Principal and Director of Studies at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. In 1981, he was invited to create the highly successful theatre department of the newly formed West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. His many successful graduates in the UK include Jane Seymour, Martin Clunes, Nigel Planer, Amy Irving and Dame Harriet Walter. And from Whopper, Hugh Jackman, Francis O'Connor, Dominic Purcell and Lisa McCune. Amazingly, Nigel still receives annual repeat fees for a role in the first series of Dad's Army, recorded in 1968. Join us for a riveting conversation where he describes the evolution of acting training and the emergence of Whopper, the triumphant training ground for artists built on the west coast of Australia. In, in church, you know, when you're reading the lesson, <laughs> well, I don't need a microphone. <laughs> I'm trained. I'm a trained actor. Trained actor, yes. It's lovely to see you again. And you, When did we meet? 94, must have been. Yes. It was, yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and we've managed to catch up every so often since then. Yes, I, le- I had to go back in 95, at the end of 95, because Mum was ill. Right. And um, they wanted me to hold on to the job and then come back. But I said, no, I don't think it's going to be quick. And it wasn't. It was three years. Right. You know what it's like and have to do that. So I didn't come back. And instead, I went and took over Central School of Speech and Drama instead and filled in there because they didn't have a principal for a while. And I looked after Mum. Yes. But it's been a rich rich career. And... uh... We're going Not to... financially. No. <laughs> but full of experience. Full of experience, my dear. Now tell me, do you still receive residual fees for the episode of Dad's Army that you filmed in 1968? Yes, I do. Right. And because I, I, because I wrote the German script for it and got an extra 10 quid, at the time, I get a little bit more on the residuals because of that. So it was translated <coughs> for German television? No, no. no. Uh, my role was a German. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. And so um, Jimmy Perry, whom I had worked with in the theatre, he was writing Dad's Army in the dressing room at the time, um, said, you, you're playing a German pilot can you, uh, with another guy. Can you write the, the script from the English into the German for me? And then they did the episode with subtitles on the, on the BBC oh. in black and white. And that's the very first episode? No, it was no. the first series, and it was episode four. Right. Uh, but it was what's called the pilot episode, so they didn't know whether it would be approved to carry on. So we did it in front of a 500-seat audience at the BBC, um, and uh, it was, you know, dependent on the audience's reaction whether the BBC would then contract it for a series. Yeah. Did you get to work with the principal cast, John Every, Levisher? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Have you not watched it? You can watch it. No, you've got a copy of lots. I, yes. look, I look forward. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I've worked with everybody, and they all knew my father's cousin, who was a, a, a West End actor, and they'd all worked with him, and so they were terribly nice to me. Right. Um, so that was a lovely experience. Very nice. Is theatre the family business? Do you have a lot of, of relatives? Yes, Sir George Alexander, the actor-manager, was my grandmother's cousin. So he owned the St James's Theatre and he uh, commissioned Wilde to write The Importance of Being Earnest and Lady Windermere's Fan. And in fact, he had over 100 plays written for him during his tenure. So I was brought up with his, you know, career hanging over my head, very, very... um, exciting career that he had because he did an awful lot for British theatre. He was the founding member of RADA. He set up RADA with Sir Herbert Bibbham Tree. He introduced electricity into his theatre. You know, it was quite a mover and shaker. Well, that were the days of the great actor-managers. That's right. He was one of the great actor-managers. Yeah. And um, so that legacy left me with a huge collection which I added to over my lifetime, and then I sold it to the University of Rochester in America, the entire Alexander collection, which you can see on the internet, because they had already inherited all his um, prompt copies. 
of Wilde and Pinero and all of those writers, you know. So they would be originals, I guess. They were all the originals, yeah. because the theatre was bombed in the war, the St James's, and it was too expensive to rebuild because it was an 1834 theatre. And so it was pulled down. That's the famous theatre that Vivian Lee marched through London to try and save the theatres. Right. And stood up in Parliament and shouted at the Prime Minister. And got a law passed that no theatre in London uh, can now be pulled down without being replaced on the spot, with, you know, within another building or whatever. So she got a law changed, which was great. And then my, and then my father's cousin was a very successful West End actor from a, you know, and, and was an early student at RADA in, in the 1916. And um, my, one of my cousins was a student of mine at Lambda. And, and then the other side of the family is that my grandfather was a doctor of music, the Royal College, with Sir Hubert Parry. And, um, my, and another cousin was a distinguished sculptor. So we were all sort of arty-farty lot, you know, on one side. Yep. And all the rest were in the military. Because right. being landed gentry, the eldest son always went into the military. So we've had five generals in the Victorian period five ride-out generals, which is amazing. It's quite exciting um, to, to look up at their history now. And so you can see that, that there, you see. Right. Full of it. So all, lots of these things, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was an interesting childhood because my father was quite old when I was born, so I was brought up in a rather Victorian environment, you know, with lots of older people around me. And it was wartime, of course. Yeah. So. Where were you born? In Kent. Right. Yes, Dad was then manager of shipping for Shell Oil in London. Yes, mm-hmm. so he had to stay. You know, it was a, a re- what do they call it a reserved occupation during the war. And he, of course, he was too old to fight anyway by then. And, so, it, and your mum? She was a homemaker, or mum was a homemaker. But they met at Shell. She was secretary to Douglas Bader, the great flying ace. Right. You know, reach for the sky, and uh, but she married you know, at the age of 22, and was a homemaker. Uh, you had, did you have one sibling? I bet just, your lovely sister just Susan. Just sister Susan, that's yeah. the only one, yes, just yeah. the two of us, yes. So were you creative as children? Did you used to do performances in she the wasn't. backyard? No? She wasn't, but I had, you know, the traditional toy theatre that Dad built, and I used to do shows up in the attic for the kids, and they all paid a penny to come and watch my, you know, shows with those um, cut-out characters on wires that you had called Pollock's Theatre. And then I'd take the money round, you know, like six pennies round to the the little post office and give it into the charity box when I was a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> or sweeties, you know, whatever, took my fancy. Yeah, so I started off. And then I was a child soprano at the age of 10 for HMV Records, which was my first official salary or fee. For that was three guineas I got for the first song that I recorded. So you were you were singing at school, or how? Yes, were you singing at school. Yes, yeah, singing yeah. at school, and then I was tested for a competition. And my sister and I both went in for music exams, piano, you know, piano exams, ballet exams, and singing things like that. Yes, my sister did better than I did at the time, but then gave it all up. And then at school, I then joined a dance band and I sang for two years in the evenings with a dance band on a Wednesday and Saturday, which was two guineas in those days, a night for four hours. And I was MC and singer with an eight-piece band. We did all around London and the suburbs, southern suburbs, when I was 16 to 18. And then off to... Um, um, my dad didn't want me to go into the theatre, of course, and did his utmost to stop me. So I went and worked in this London on the Stock Exchange for a year. But in the evenings, I was stage managing <laughs> shows at our local rep. So I'd come rushing down from London and stage manage, not, well, not stage manage, but ASM in those days. And the first show I ASM'd was with Prunella Scales. Oh. Yes, and Jeremy Brett um, in a play at Bromley. And we've known each other ever since. So, I mean, she was the first person I ever had the pleasure of looking after. It's great. So it's a great experience. 
What were the narratives that you had access to as a child? Were you an avid reader or... Yeah, my grandfather, yes. My grand... No, grandfather was very keen on my reading. So he gave me all sorts of... I'm very grateful that he gave me the books. Um, You know, like Prester John, John Buck and those sort of books, the adventure books, which he loved and, and I grew to love as well. You know, you don't like being told what to read by grandparents, but in fact, I'm ever so grateful because there were lovely books so that and then um you know we had music you know my sister and i would go and buy the latest hit disc you know when we were teenagers from the shop at the on our gramophone in our bedroom and then we'd have luxembourg radio which was the pirate radio and we had a little transistor and we could uh, with one earpiece we had to share to listen to pop music because it was banned by the BBC. And they used to broadcast from sea, didn't they? From no, this is from Luxembourg. Oh right, right. Okay. Before before the pirate radios yeah. around the sea, this was from Luxembourg, and um, the first person I can remember listening to as a child was Petula Clark, and she's still going. Yeah, can you believe it? She is. And I was only a baby then. <laughs> yes, and. Um, yeah, we used to listen to that because the BBC, Lord Reith, banned pop music on the BBC for years. You couldn't hear it. So my mother would buy all the latest records of Nat King Cole and those people and play them. So we, that's the sort of music we had. Yeah. Was up. that in response to the Beatles phenomenon or that they were banned, pop music was banned? Or? No, but that's Beatles is much later. It's not oh, late. Okay, right. 25 years later. Right, yes. right, right, right. No, I'm going back to the 1940s. 40s. <laughs> <laughs> Ding dong. <laughs> Radio. <laughs> and then, of course, I had the competition of the classical side of, of the family life where we had to have all this music when dad or grandfather was out, you know, playing the organ in London or something. Right. And, um, and then when they came home, it was all classical music and we were stuck at the piano rehearsing our piano pieces. Did you attend theatre as a child? Dad was brilliant. Yeah. Um, because we weren't far from London, he took me to see every single Shakespeare play at the Old Vic Theatre, starting, it was called The Five-Year Plan, directed by Michael Bentall, and it um, went through a cycle uh, from, I guess I must have been only about 10, and we go into the gallery, in those days they the galleries were wooden benches at the Old Vic, and we'd watch. He wanted me to see Shakespeare, and so I saw every single Shakespeare play. It was incredible, over five years. Wow. And I mean, it only cost a shilling or something to go up into the gallery. But I saw the very young Richard Burton, Claire Bloom, Faye Compton, John Neville, um, all of those people. And then when they weren't in a show, like they weren't in the... It was a, like a repertory company in those days. You'd meet them in the bar if they weren't in it. They'd come round and watch the other show. They were really good. It was like a company. And I'd chat away to people and get all their autographs as a little teenager, which was great. So I can remember talking to Sean Connery when he was just a lad. Doing pre, his pre James Bond. Yeah, just in the 19... Probably pre-South Pacific... He, he was, oh, he, this would have been, yeah, 1950s I'm talking about. Right. Is there a performance that you recall that, that seduced you to the stage? That, well, I think I was already seduced from birth. Right. Yes, I don't think, I don't think there was any question that the theatre was in my blood right from day one. Were you a show-off as a child or no, an age of it? No, 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 very shy. Right. But I just loved the theatre. And, but, the, but the show that I remember most from the Old Vic was Richard Burton and John Neville as Sir Toby Belch and Andrew Agecucci because as a child I thought that was hysterically funny scenes, you know. And the other one was um, Winter's Tale. The magic. Uh, it was the magic of how they did the shows in those days that I thought was fantastic. The lighting and just the very simple scenic effects that they did, I thought well, they were entrancing. I was always rushing home to try and see if I could do that in my model theatre, you know. And of course I went to school with Michael York and he and I did all our first plays together at school. Is secondary school or tertiary? Uh, Bromley Grammar School, yes. Right. yes. So we, we went right through school together, doing all our plays together. Endless pictures, because he was a local boy. And, um, and then he went off to the National Youth Theatre 
and I went to um, drama school, and then he went up to Oxford. Drama school being the Rose Rose Bruford, that's right. College yeah. of Speech and Drama. That's right, which was um, very old-fashioned. I was telling the students at Whopper the other day when I was giving out the prizes for the Shakespeare Award, I said, you know, when I, you won't believe this, but when I was taught Shakespeare in 1961, we were still being taught by rote, and they didn't know what that meant. So I said, well, it's where your teacher tells you how to say each line of a speech from Shakespeare. So you, you copy the teacher's inflection. And the same with your verse speaking. You copy their inflection. You know, the outward inflection, the downward inflection. You do all this sort of thing. And, that, uh, and they, they were, their eyes were popping out when I told them. I said, yes. And the same in Germany. It went on in Germany and Russia much later than England. They were still having to learn speeches copying their teachers in Germany in the 70s, 1970s. Doesn't make it very organic. Well, no, it was... But that's how roles were passed on in history. Right. Yes, of course. You know, and that's the only way it was done. And these people were still the leftovers of another era. And we were on that cusp of the the Edwardian ending and the look back in anger starting, you know. We were before that. I guess you could still quote great passages of Shakespeare. I can, because of that. yes. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. all the youth of England are on fire. Yes, absolutely. Endlessly. Yeah. With, with the right inflections. <laughs> <laughs> Though we talked about briefly the actor managers before that existed. Mm. Were they actually talented or were they just great? They had great business acumen in order to create this company around them in, which enabled them to play great roles. So Donald Wolford, um, Tree. Were they great actors? They were bombastic. I'm not asking you because no. you probably saw, saw them perform, but... No, no. I, I what do you know? Uh, I, I would talk about my own ancestor, George Alexander. I don't think he... He was a great... Com- he was very good at light comedy, which is why he scored such a huge success in The Importance of Being Earnest. Um, and Gilgood saw that and copied it. Right. When he was a young boy, he saw him perform it. I just thought it was wonderful, but he, he wasn't a classical actor. Whereas Donald Wolfitt was the sort of much later period, of course, of the, 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 the sort of uh, touring bombast, you know, and uh, some things apparently... I only saw him once on stage, and he was just larger than life, and he was, you know, he had the stage to himself, nobody else was allowed on the stage near him, do you know what I mean? Yeah, he told a friend of mine just to say, keep away, boy, keep away. He <laughs> was that sort of person, and I don't think he was very good by our standards at all. Herbert Beerbohm Tree was in his own world, and George Bernard Shaw, when he directed him in um, Pygmalion, originally, the original production with Mrs Patrick Campbell, nearly died from stress tore his hair out. He just couldn't cope with this man because he was all over the place. Well, st- stylistically, I, I guess it was very declamatory. And totally declamatory. Playing to these large yeah. spaces. But they did set up Rada. Right. Those, you know, those 1904. Are... Beerbohm Tree and George Alexander and, and several of the others all got together and there's actually a little film of the first meeting. What? A bit of historic film in about nine, yeah, 1904. Yeah, amazing. Who was Rose Bruford? Rose was um, a, a, a teacher, a speech and drama teacher, who set up the first department um, at the Royal College of Music. She set up a little drama wing of that, and I've got all her letters, which I've presented now to the Rose Bruford Archives, but I cleared out her estate when she died, and I had all her correspondence um, in green-type and handwritten letters about the struggle to set up this. It was mostly girls at the, in the 30s, you know, the, I think, and later on, of course, all the men went to war. So she mostly had girls who were, were like, it was like a finishing school for, for, for speech and drama teachers, you know. And after 10 years of that, she broke away and set up her own college in Sidcup in 1950. I think it was so that when I went there in 61 it had been going about 10 years and she struggled on and she had a lot of very elderly ladies um, who would do verse recitals and things 
But Rose was wonderful, really. She was first speaker officially employed by W.B. Yeats and also by um, T.S. Eliot. They wanted her to read their poetry back to them to see whether they got it right, because she was a brilliant first speaker. And I've got a lovely record of her speaking verse, which we recorded at the Festival Hall. Um, and so in a, she was, you know, a bit of a tartar, you know, because she came from a very a different sort of school. She was Welsh. And, um, but we did have wonderful people teaching us on reflection. You know, Gilgood came, um, you know, Macefield came, some of the great poets came and taught us. And so I suppose I probably didn't appreciate it as much then as I do now. Well, nobody, the legacy. Nobody does it. No, you used to no, 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 Because no. yeah. I was very young, you know, yeah. I was probably the youngest student at the time. Yeah. You, know. you spoke about your Shakespeare classes. What did the other acting training consist of, the other subjects that you did? Well, we had a, a huge variety of things like period movement and singing, and uh, then we were doing a degree, don't forget, in, in teaching. So it was a two. It was a six-year course in three years. So half the the week was studying all the basics of child psychology and all those things for school teaching, speech and drama, English and history in school. So I had to qualify as a school teacher as well as doing drama. So the acting program, of which there was one class a week with Miss Bruford, with fifty students in the room. That was the year she had to have enough students to keep solvent. So there were like 50 students in my year, um, most of whom went into teaching, you know, in schools. So the theatre aspect was very minor in that sense. And so she'd do, she'd read bits out of Stanislavski's An Act of Prepares, which we all had to read. And then she'd do ex his exercises, you know, from it. And that was about all the acting we got. I and mean, it was terribly crude. Yeah. You know, there was no, no not nothing like an acting teacher that you have today. Yeah. You know, like Lyle, for instance. Yes. Nothing like that. Um, so it was it was knowledge of Stanislavski, which of course has all been subsumed now in modern theatre, and then lots of verse speaking, lots of movement, lots of period movement. When you talk period movement, you talk about how to uh, restoration, you know, restoration dances, fan language, yeah, we walking to, with a cane. Yeah, we had to do all the stagecraft exercises. It was great, walking down a staircase without looking at the stairs, all those wonderful exercises, <laughs> old-fashioned <laughs> things. <laughs> and, uh, but nevertheless, and lots of people would come and work with us, like Gilgood and all sorts of people, you know. But it was very antique, if you like. Yeah in that sense, but I, I, I don't regret it at all. I remember it very well, and I know in retrospect I learnt a lot on reflection at, because of my teaching side of it. She told me that I would never be an actor. She said, you, you're a born teacher. And I said, yes, you, you may be right, but I need to do it in order Just to be it. able to understand it. Yeah. And so I, were, I was the first person to get a job in the theatre from my group. Practically nobody went into the theatre in my year. Were you a good actor? So people tell me if you read the notices. Yeah. I wouldn't say by today's standards I was very good. Right. But, but I was an actor and a singer, of course. Did a lot of singing, a lot of musicals. So what did your career entail? What sort of work did you do? Did lots of musicals in London and on tour and, and did a lot of... Later on did a lot of... I did three years of touring in plays and then did lots of TV bits and pieces and that sort of thing, which was, and radio, did quite a bit of radio. Um, but no, I, I wasn't a, a good, I was, yeah, I was a good actor, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I did a thing in Ballarat. Um, I played a, a role in um, Anything Goes for Peter Tullock. Oh, great, right. Playing yes. the old Jewish millionaire in that. Band. Elijah Whitney. Yes. So Lyle, you hadn't been on stage for a while. No, because I'd had all the operations yeah. and the cancer yeah. and things, and I, I didn't know that I could actually do it safely. But I did that, and Lyle came to it and with Les Cartwright, and he said, I had no idea you were that good. <laughs> Which is a backhanded compliment if ever there was one. <laughs> and Tim Minton came from Whopper with his friend, and he said, Oh, it's wonderful to see you doing what you taught us so well. 
So that's nice. That was very sweet, wasn't it? Yeah. Because you don't know what you know. But I did get you know good reviews for the plays that I did, but I've no idea, you know, in retrospect because they're not recorded. Right. And uh, you know, I hate to see myself anyway on film. So well, I think everybody does. Yeah, loathe it. So let's fast forward, and you land in Australia. Yes. How did you arrive in Australia? Well, that's a long history if you want the whole history, because that that's the legacy of theatre training in Australia, which comes from London. And um, I was deputy principal and acting principal and then principal of Lambda for seven years, um, having done a year at the National Theatre in you know, management training. And um, Lambda had had before Lambda's, you know, was a London Academy of Music originally in 1861, and it started its theatre section in 1925. And then, uh, but in uh, 1935, Michel Saint-Denis was brought over from France to join Olivier Gilgood and Richardson at the Old Vic. And they asked um, Michel Saint-Denis if he could start a little studio workshop school attached to the old Vic, which he did in 1935. And that ran for some years. And uh, eventually it moved, because of space, it moved down to Dulwich, near Dulwich College, into a building there. And uh, people like Prunella Scales was a student there with Saint-Denis, Keith Michel, all those Aussies coming over pretending they weren't Australian in those days, yeah. Coral Brown, yeah. they were all, all students there. And that was a, the first sort of studio theatre there. When that folded because of lack of funds, um, the staff took over running Lambda. So the syllabus of Michel Saint-Denis, which was like the foundation of drama training that had ever been written, you know, there was no formal writing about drama training before that. But the uh, French had obviously had some sort of system going. Training, yes, the French, actors, yeah. yes, by rote. Yeah. Yes, that was very formal at the academy. And so the what happened was that uh, Michael McCohen, who had been a famous West End director, was wanted to improve the standard of acting that he'd been, you know, working with as a director. And so he took over Lambda. He took staff from the old Vic school, which had collapsed, to Lambda, Norman Ayrton and Michael Fuller and Iris Warren, the great voice teacher, and um, changed the face of, of acting training in London completely. And, and Lambda became the forefront of actor training because RADA uh, was just a finishing school for ladies. There was no acting being taught at RADA until quite recently. Well, never taught acting. They just did plays and they taught you how to move and they taught you how to dance, they taught all those things. It was a finishing school, very much so, for years and years and years. And that's all written down, you don't have to quote me. And so Michael developed the Michel Saint-Denis theory of training, the, the links between the subjects, you know, bringing in mime, improvisation, commedia dell'arte, all these wonderful subjects, fusing them together and planning when you should teach them over the three-year period. And some of his first students were Donald Sutherland, Janet Sussman, Brian Cox, um, and many, many more that went on to great success. Richard Harris, lots of people like that in those early days. So drama training per se was very late starting in the world, properly. So we're talking about, you know, late 50s, early 60s. That's it. Well, that's, that's very late. That's it. Very late. Yeah. Then comes Australia wants to get in on the act. So one of the team at the Old Vic Theatre was a man called Hugh Hunt, the brother of Sir John Hunt, who climbed Everest. Hugh Hunt was appointed by the Australian government as the head of a new idea called the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust. And so he went to Australia and set up this trust in 19... I think it was 55. And he had the idea of starting an opera company in Sydney. So he called over another friend of his from the old Vic called Peter Quentin and said, come over to Australia, I can give you a job and to start the opera company. So Peter became the first director of what is now the Australian Opera. 
And uh, then Peter and Hugh, and another man whose name I don't remember, decided they would like to have a, a drama unit like they'd had at the Old Vic. So Peter and this other guy set up NIDA in, uh, I think, 1959. Yeah. And Peter ran it until 1963, and then a man called Brown took it over after that. So that was the beginning. And they took all the Michel Sandini syllabus, you see, to Australia. So, and then Norman Ayrton from Lambda and Michael Fuller from Lambda went out to teach it. Norman then directed this young girl in the Australian opera called Joan Sutherland. She then became a board member of Lambda. Michael Fuller stayed, and then Norman came back and then took over as principal of Lambda when Michael retired. And then I took over from Norman when he retired. Right. And so then at 1976, whiz on to 1976, a man comes to my office and says, we're going to start a drama department in Melbourne attached to the College of Music. Could you interview people for the role of head of theatre uh, if anybody applies in England? And this was a lovely man called... Lenton Parr, who was a sculptor, and he was the head of the Victorian College of the Arts, which had, had, was music and ballet. Yes. So I interviewed with Michael, my boss, Michael Barry, and I interviewed this man called Peter Royston, and uh, he got the job, and he, he was an Australian directing at Leicester Rep, and he went over and became the first head of theatre at um, the VCA. Lenton said, if ever you come to Australia night, you know, just look us up. And I said, well, you know, I'll never be there, you know. And, um, and so, anyway, so go on now to 1980. And uh, Trinity College, where my family had been examiners for Trinity College in music, you know, and my grandfather was a, a, an examiner as well. Um, said, Nigel, we'd really love you. Can you take time off to come and do an examination tour and check the standard of teaching in Australia, New Zealand and Hong Kong for us? And I said, no, I'm not free. I'm not free. I've got a home in London, you know, partner and everything like that. Anyway, eventually I was asked to go out and direct in Berkeley, California to, do, to start up a, a, an extension of the drama studio. So I I said, all right, well, look, um, I'm going to go over and do this thing in Los Angeles, uh, in Berkeley, California. Um, and I sat down with Trinity and I said, if you can fly me on from there, I'll do the, the New Zealand leg for you, you know, then Hong Kong and then come back, you know, on a world ticket. So it worked out quite well. So I did that. And that's where I met Chris Edmund. He was, he was also in Berkeley. He'd been flown out to direct in this new extension of the Drama Studio London. And so we, we stayed in the same house together for six weeks. And uh, um, we were both directing plays with these students, which was lovely, fab fabulous. I went on to New Zealand and, and Hong Kong, and it was a great success. Came back, and the next year they begged me and of course I made a lot of money out of it, you know, because they pay, cover all your expenses and then you get a fee on top, which is yes. it's great for me because in London we were getting peanuts in drama training, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. in those days. Yeah. You know, there was no money about in drama schools because they're all private. They, yeah. There were no university drama courses, they're all private. So um, um, they begged me to do Australia because it had been a great success to have a young person, you know, um, doing it because I was only, you know, in my thirties um, then, and that they mostly had people who were in their seventies doing the exam tours, <laughs> <laughs> and they were really excited to have somebody young. So you've been listening to pop music, and I've been listening to pop music. Yeah. And while and so when I went out to the first place was Perth, and um, I uh, the, the Arts Council of Australia asked me if I'd do workshops with professional actors while I was doing these exams. So I did um, two-day weekend course on voice, movement, acting, Shakespeare and you know, all those things um, for 60 people over a weekend at the old Mount Lawley building, you know, which is all that was there in those days. 
and Jeff Gibbs came to see it and uh, stayed awake for it and <laughs> very nice <laughs> so because he was he was uh, and he wasn't the any, university though he was, he was at Claremont teachers right. college no there were no universities but teachers college teachers right. college he yeah. was just a lecturer but they'd asked they tried to start a drama course they'd interview Edgar Metcalf they'd interviewed Stephen Barry they'd interviewed various people I found out later and they'd all weren't suitable because they had no experience of training students. They, they didn't know how to do a course. They didn't know anything like that. But they were practitioners. They were just practitioners. Yeah, yeah. They were artistic directors, you know, and, and actors and very good at it. So um, they asked me if I would be interested. And I said, no, I've got a home and a partner in London. I've got a mortgage and this something else. I couldn't possibly do that, you know. Um, and then so I then flew on to Adelaide and I followed the Queen, actually. She was on a royal tour, <laughs> just, just behind her. Uh, <laughs> in the plane and uh, got to Melbourne and I thought I was there for five weeks and I thought I wonder if that man is still there that we talked to in London you know at this VCA place so uh, I I rang this Victorian College of the Arts and I said is Linton Parr still there I said oh, yes he's still the boss of this I said would you tell him that Nigel Rideout's here and he said that if I was ever in town I'd look him up so um, the secretary did that, you know, and then they rang me back at the um, hotel, and uh, he said, "Oh, Nigel, you're here." He said, "Oh, that's so, that's so pertinent that you should be here at this moment." He said, "Could you, could we meet?" So I said, "Well, I finish at five thirty, you know, in the week. I'll come down," and um, so I went down to see him in St Kilda, you know, Road, and walked into his office and found myself in front of the entire board of the VCA, all with champagne in their hands. They were having a board meeting. He said, I'm so sorry to do this to you, but, I, but it's just sort of fitted in that Peter Royston, has, who you interviewed in London, has just given in his notice. And we just wondered whether you would be interested in taking over his position, because it's not been the school that we wanted it to be. He was very into street theatre and community stuff and this, that, the other, and we wanted a classical training, and they haven't had any of that for the last five years he'd been in the contract. And they said, we, we, we just desperately want to get back to a, a classical training. So I think a lot of the trouble with Peter Royston was, whom I don't know really at all, was that they'd done a lot of jigging, jigging about, but they didn't have any craft. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a strong foundation before you went on to do all these other things, you know, which is fair enough. So I said, oh, well, you wouldn't believe it, but I've just been asked if I'd start one in Perth. And, uh, oh, you don't want to go there, you know, and we pay more, you know, and they were all going on about this. 10,000 a year more, you know, we pay them, you know, and you ought to go to West Australia. So anyway, to cut it short, I decided to opt for Perth because... I was fed up at Lambda taking over a building that had been going for 100 years, you know, with no money. Yeah. And to start something new without any history um, and with good funds. A very exciting prospect. was an exciting prospect yeah. for me. So I said, you know, I'll just take, you know, the heap of sand and start from nothing. No staff, no secretary, nothing, no infrastructure at all. And so I, they were very upset in the, at the VCA, but I said no. I think so. That's how we started. So what about that other the cast of personalities who came to be the the Whopper staff? Chris Edmund, you talk about Lyle Jones. How did they all arrive at Whopper? Well, that was that was very lucky because on this first this audition tour, I then went to stay with the head of the Arts Council Australia, Jill Nash, in her beautiful house at McMahon's Point. And she, we got on like a house on fire and she introduced me to her best friends, Peter and Jill Prescott. And Peter was the head of the British Council, which then existed in, don't think it exists in Australia anymore. And their, their um, function was to promote English elements, you know, in art, painting, theatre, everything, in Australia. And we got on famously. And so when I accepted the job, Peter said, look, mate, he said, if you need any help, setting up Whopper, give me a bell. Uh, I can pay your airfares for you. Brilliant. 
So I said, well, that's fantastic because I, I don't know what I'm going to do yet and how I'm going to do it because um, I've spoken, there's nobody in Perth with any experience, apparently. And so when I started the first year, which was February 1982, which is all written out in these letters, um, I came over with my partner, Robert, who, and I paid my partner, Robert, to be my sort of gopher and notator of classes and organisational and that sort of thing. There was just the two of us, and so they co-opted a girl from Mount Lawley College to, to be my secretary. And But in the middle of the, the Melbourne trip, and I'd accepted the job, Jeff said, rang me, and he said, look, I've been asked to try and set this all up. This is Jeff Gibbs. Yes, he said, I've been called in to set this all up. He said, and my secretary, Bette Mills, will look after you while you're on this tour and do everything for you, organise auditions and all of that. And he said, um, but do you think you could go and meet Dame Peggy Van Prague in her flat? She's retired, but it, it would be wonderful if we could persuade her to come over and and redo the ballet course, because it had collapsed. Right. They'd tried it with a gymnastic teacher or something, and it had all collapsed. Don't quote me, because I don't know the full details, but it's all written down in the archives. Um, and anyway, so I said, oh, I'd love to meet Dame Peg, you know, because I was a great ballet fan in London. Um, and uh, so I went round to see Peggy, who was then, you know, crippled with arthritis and a hip problem and everything on sticks. And we had tea and she said, are you going to go and do this job in Perth? And I said, well, I don't know yet. I haven't accepted it. But um, what do they want you to do? And she said, well, they want me to go and staff it and do a program and a syllabus and set up the training program well we got on like a house on fire when I mean, we bitched ourselves stupid about australia and london and ballet and all that sort of thing and then at the end of it she sort of smiled at me she said well if you go i'll come <laughs> she did. bless her heart no she was really really sweet and uh, she only came for a year on three sections of the year not the whole time because of the holidays and um, so uh, we started together and I think Jeff had found Reyes de Lara. I don't know how he found her, I forget, and her husband, Jim Hughes. And Reyes then, who was a wonderful modern dance teacher, I, I co-opted her in to teach for the actors. Her husband, Jim Hughes, I got him in to do the animal studies and I trained him. He didn't know how to do it, so I had to train him how to do it and movement and that sort of thing. And and then I taught everything else for the first year. We didn't have anybody. And then the second year, it was, I persuaded Lyle to come out during his summer holiday and direct the Duchess of Malfi for me. Because they, their holiday was in August, September, and that was during that was a perfect slot for for the for the students. But so, you'd known Lyle in London. Lyle and I had known each other since 1968, and had worked together and alongside. And were great mates, great mates. And so I said, and he said, "Oh no, 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 no I can't. How?" I said, "No, uh, you pay the. I'm not going to pay." I said, "You pay the airfare, and I'll promise you enough money." because you get all your tax back when you leave Australia, because you've only, you only done six weeks. You'll make enough money to cover the airfare and make a lot more money than you would have, and you've got your salary anyway from the school for that six weeks. Well, it took endless persuading that Lyle wasn't going to be diddled by Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually he came out and did the six weeks of the Duchess of Malfi, and uh, that's another long story I won't go into now. That's great. And then I and then I got Chris Edmund out because um, Peter paid the airfare, and I'd also got an airfare for Joan Kemp Welsh to come out for the Festival of Perth because by then I was on the board of the Festival of Perth, organising productions for the festival. So I got John Dorby and Joan Kemp Welsh out on two airfares from the British Council, gave them productions at Whopper and productions for the festival so they had a joint you know program of work over three months and then I had to go and rent a house big enough to put them all up 
because there was no way to fund them otherwise. You know, there was no money to pay their lodgings or anything like that. Yeah. There was no money to pay them except the, the hourly rate sort of thing. You know, so that's how it all started. Fabulous. Got Chris out and Lyle, and then <coughs> and then I said to 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 Lyle, look, we are looking for a permanent job, um, as as acting teacher. I'd already interviewed a boy from New Zealand in Melbourne called Simon Phillips and gave him his first job in Australia to be my directing lecturer. So he came over and then I got another grant from the government because there was a lot of money around in those college days before university. I, I got another grant to employ a full-time acting teacher and that was Lyle. So Lyle started in February 1984. Simon uh, was there in 84, I think, too, yeah. And Chris was there in 83 and then stayed. Um, and uh, Lyle and Chris eventually became head of the department also. Yes, absolutely. They stayed on and I, I went back because I had a job to go back to in London in 1984. They, they begged me to stay for a five-year contract in 84. And I said, no, I said, A, because I've got a job to go back to. B, I've got a house in London with a mortgage. C, I've got a partner over there because he, he couldn't get a visa f except for the first year. And, uh, and, and D, there's talk about it becoming a university and I'm not interested in anything to do with no. university, only in theatre. So that's why I left and then popped back occasionally to do some teaching, which when I met you. Yeah. Yeah. What makes for good actor training? What needs to be covered? Do you mean in terms of what well, it's the book? Well, the, this, in three years' experience of training, what should an actor well, be exposed? This to? book, which I wrote, training the actor's voice, which Hugh wrote the forward for. This this book was a request of the voice teachers at Central when I was running the Central's course. And they were being taught by Cicely Berry and all, all of the greats. And they said, our teaching in voice is wonderful, but there's nobody telling us how to fit into a three-year acting programme. What is our role? And what do we teach in the first year? What do we teach in the second? And what do we teach? Nobody does a syllabus for us. So I said, well, I'll write it out for you. I said, because this is what I inherited from... Michelle Sandini and my own experience and that sort of thing. So this book is the only book ever written, which is a three-year training syllabus really? on voice, but integrating it with acting, improvisation, all those other subjects. So when you ask that question, it's all about the fact that um, there are many, many roads to Rome, as you are well aware. You know, you, you, there are basics and one of the things I was thinking about when it's coming up to Lyle's 90th birthday, I was going to say that, you know, when Lyle and I were growing up in the theatre in England, you know, the, this world is so totally different but from what we knew, you know, in terms of media forms and all the different outlets for, for theatre and film and television. But the basics of the craft of acting hasn't changed and never will. You can either do it or you can't do it. Well, that was my next question. Can anyone be taught to act? Yeah, anybody can be taught. Whether they've got any talent yes. is questionable, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, how you, and how you actually pick it up and respond to it, you know. And the talent is the, the mysterious bit, you know. As Ralph Richardson said years ago, he said, one day it's there, my dear, and the next day it's gone. Well, many, many of your students have gone on to the world stage, mm. people like Francis O'Connor and Robert Taylor and Mr Hugh Jackman. Yes. That must be very satisfying. Yes, it is. It is. And, and particularly because I think one of the first things I said to the students, I said, look, and I don't mean to be pompous, but I said, look, I've, come, I've just come from London. You know, I've been working in the oldest drama school in the world and teaching with some of the finest actors you could ever wish to work with you know on my staff as guests you know and I said there's no point in me working with you if you can't think outside the box of Perth you've got to think internationally and they they found that very difficult 
to imagine. They, they, it seemed so remote to them in those days. They couldn't imagine because there was no link in those days between Australia and England and America. It hadn't started, you know, there were no equity arrangements, none of that was happening, it was exceptional. You know, and the people who were working in England and, Australia and America were people because they'd got visas and married and all sorts of been contracted for big movies and things, but, you know, they just couldn't imagine how they would ever get there. So it's very exciting to see that, particularly I was watching Paul Dark's last episode on Saturday night and seeing lovely Harry Richardson, first job out of WAPA, got five years in Paul Dark. Paul Fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Are you able to uh, sit back and enjoy the work of your ex-students, or are you wanting to <laughs> advise and correct? No, no. no. You can once they've up, gone out of the class. That's, that's it. it. Yes, yes. What I do find sad, and and you can put this on record happily, is that that there are a lack of very good directors in my experience over the last thirty years, and some of the students I've seen since in the theatre aren't as good as when they left. Right. They haven't progressed because they haven't been challenged. Even Cameron Mackintosh said that when he first came out to do Les Mis in Australia. He said Australians are very good. This is then, not now. He said Australians are very good at giving you 70% because nobody's asked them to yeah. give 100%. Yeah. And then when they were asked, they rose to the occasion, yeah. which was great. Because training is, is great grounding, but I guess the bulk of your refining of the craft is learning on the job. It's driving a car. Yeah. You know, pass the test and then you learn to drive a car, don't you? Yeah. You never learn while you're remembering all the rules. Yeah. You learn when you get out there on your own. Well, I'm sure I speak on behalf of many of your ex-students who uh, appreciate you giving us the keys and allowing us to sit in your car <laughs> and, uh, and to drive it for a while. So thank you, Dan. Thank you very much for this conversation, Nigel. It's lovely to see you. Thank you, Peter. Season two of Stages continues to offer insightful conversations with our finest creatives. My guests offer valuable reflection on their career, process and all that matters to them. Next time on Stages, I sit down with Henry Boston. Henry was the inaugural executive director of the Chamber of Arts and Culture in West Australia. He has also served extensively at the Perth Festival, and he offers a great assessment of the arts in Australia and their vital role in nurturing, informing and entertaining their communities. There are some 80 back episodes available from the Stages archive, so why don't you take a look? And better still, have a listen. Stages is available through iTunes, Spotify and our hosting platform, Mushka. Always entertaining, our guests deliver terrific anecdotes, fascinating observations and brilliant history. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening to this episode number 82 of the award-winning podcast. See you next time on Stages. <laughs>